Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Coming up, we get the latest on the intelligence, planning and military operations that led to the largest drug seizure in the history of the state. I can say that the uh, weight of cocaine involved was 2,253 uh, kilograms and the value is 157 million euro. And as claims of landlords exiting the Irish market continue, a new budget proposal asks whether they should pay less tax on rental income. We debate the merits of such a move. And from fallen trees to power outages and cancelled flights, we assess the impact of Storm Agnes. Now, the unfolding drama of a cocaine seizure off the Irish coast with an approximate value of 157 million has captured the attention of the nation. A joint operation between the Naval Service, Air Corps, Army Ranger Wing and the Defence Force Headquarters has resulted in the state taking possession of the consignment and three men being arrested. We're here to discuss the latest developments and to delve into the intelligence that would have led to this operation is Fianna Fáil spokesperson on European and Foreign Affairs, Lisa Chambers, Social Democrats spokesperson on Defence and Foreign Affairs, Gary Gannon. Alexander Chance, Head of Policy and Research at Transparency International Ireland and Senior Fellow at the Azure Forum. And Crime and Defence Editor with the Irish Mirror and Star, Mick O'Toole. And Mick, it's to you I'm going to come to first. What more did we learn today at that press conference about the operation that brought us to this point? We learned an awful lot about it today, Kira. Uh, I think we learned its vastness and how sophisticated it was. We we knew that there had been an ongoing operation probably since Monday, Sunday night, Monday morning, when one of two boats allegedly involved in this operation ran into difficulties off the west coast of Wexford. But uh, Justin Kelly, the Garda Assistant Commissioner in charge of serious and organised crime, who really, his unit effectively ran this investigation revealed that a joint task force the Prison Guardi, the Defence Forces and Revenue Commissioner's Customs Arm, was established on the 22nd of September, so last Friday. So obviously that's when Guardi decided to act on this, but obviously it's a matter of intelligence. And we know that the MV Matthew, the, the boat, the, the freighter in question, left Curaçao uh, off the coast of South, South America on the 19th of August. So it had been making its way from South America to Ireland via the Atlantic Ocean and, and the Canary Islands and such like. So it, it we we've, we learned today that this was a long running investigation. As I say, it kicked off on the 22nd of September, but there's no doubt that there was planning and surveillance and intelligence way before that. Um, given the scale of the seizure, given the outlay 
of money that would have been involved in terms of procuring those ships and the drugs themselves. There is an acceptance, isn't there, Mick, that there must be major drug cartels involved in this? Yeah, uh, Commissioner Kelly uh, referred to a murderous cartel. So when he was talking about that, he was referring to one of the the, the cartels that are based in Colombia. There are several cartels that they, you know, we, we call the Kenan group a cartel, but the cartels in Colombia put the Kenans in the halfpenny place. And now the Kenans would have a value of around a billion euro at their height. But these cartels, I was investigating them tonight, some of them have, you know, 1,500, 2,000 members and they're all heavily armed and they would be a direct threat to the state of Colombia. They've been involved in murders. They've been involved in taking on the army and the police. So they're very, very big. And they would send hundreds of millions of dollars worth of cocaine to Europe, America and, you know, places like Australia every single year. So these these groups are the real big cartels. In terms of the amount of money there, they said 157 million, but I suppose that doesn't account, Mick, for any of the drugs that perhaps were thrown overboard or were lost mm. at sea. And it certainly doesn't reflect the street value of the cocaine, no. does it? No, I, I think Gardy would be satisfied that they seized all the cocaine that was on this consignment. It was, as you say, 2.25 tonnes. So it's, it's the biggest by weight in Irish history. Now, Gardy will always quantify drugs in value. So for them, their formula is each kilogram is 70,000 euros. So it's 157 million for what was seized. But that doesn't really take into account the fact that by its very nature, when drugs are smuggled from South America to Europe or Ireland or any other parts, they're obviously in as small a, a form as they can. They are what you call cut. They are diluted when they reach their landmass. So Britain, Ireland, Germany, wherever. And that's when they go from, say, every kilogram in the consignment would could be multiplied by three, maybe four, depending on the purity. So really, on a street level, for this consignment drugs, were it to have gotten through the security blanket and made its way to Ireland, England and wherever, you're probably talking 450, 500 million euro on the streets. And was Ireland the final destination, do they suspect, for this haul or was it intended to go elsewhere? Well, yes and no. So some of the consignment was destined for Ireland. Mr Kelly, Commissioner Kelly said that today. In fact, interestingly, he said that no shipments of drugs that go through Irish waters would uh, not have an element of the drugs going to Ireland. So every big shipment like, th like this, a bit of it will go to Ireland. Some of it will go to England. We know that Ireland has become increasingly a route for drugs going into England because of uh, Brexit. Ironically, there are more security checks going from France to England. We have the common travel area, but it also would have gone to other places in mainland Europe. So it was quite a large consignment and it would have been broken up and there would have been several crime gangs involved in this. And they also spoke today about a real glut of cocaine on the market at the moment. What are the factors, Mick, that are leading to that? Money. Um, the, the cartels in Colombia and you know places like Peru and Ecuador know that there is significant money to be made from uh, cocaine in, let's say, the richer parts of the world. So America, Western Europe and Australia and Asia and that part of the world. So they have ramped up production and they're making a lot of money. Um, and interestingly, and this I think is a classic example of it, in recent years they have changed their strategies. They are going for sort of mega shipments, so not one shipment, one shipment of say 250 uh, million euro, 100, you know, that sort of level, rather than maybe 20 smaller consignments. They break up the consignments when they get to land, say Rotterdam or whatever, but they do massive shipments and a smaller amount of them trying to get through the net.
All right, uh, Michael, really, you might just stay on the line there. I want to go to Alexander here. This was the biggest haul in the history of the state. How significant a seizure is it? It's significant. And uh, I guess first thing to say is to commend the men and women, the defence forces and the Gardaí and uh, the revenue officials who took part in this interdiction. Uh, it was very well carried out. Uh, it's significant and it would be at the upper end of the quantities of cocaine seized. Having said that, over within Ireland or, or sorry, oh, well, obviously it's obviously. Within Ireland, but globally, yeah, globally it would be it would be towards the upper end. Just to give you uh, some context, uh, in the last couple of weeks, Brazil have had a record seizure of three point six tons off their northeastern coast. Uh, that's still considered pretty big for Brazil, which would be a key transit uh, country for uh, the cocaine pipeline to Europe, um, and. I guess it's important to highlight that over the last decade, the overall quantity of cocaine being seized in Europe and in the transit and, and producer countries has gone up substantially for some of the reasons that Mick alluded to, uh, as well as COVID having put a restriction on the, the, um, the transportation avenues that can be used. So there was hence the glut of, of cocaine that needed to reach its, its consumer markets, of which Ireland is a, is a key one. Um, but over that over the last 10 or so years, there's been an increase in the overall quantity of cocaine seized, but there's also been an increase in the quantity of cocaine seized in individual interdictions. So the UK, for example, in recent years, it hasn't been uncommon for multi-ton seizures of this type. There was a four-ton seizure off a, uh, off a tugboat off the Scottish coast a few years ago, for example. Um, so it's, not, it, it, it's getting less, uh, less uncommon to have seizures of this magnitude. Um, Mick spoke there about the intelligence that would have led to this operation. Tell me how that intelligence would have come about and, and how it would have worked to bring us to this point. Well, I guess what you saw yesterday uh, was the visible kinetic end uh, of what was probably, and I'm only going off what I've read in, in the media, but what is was probably uh, a fairly lengthy operation that involved multiple agencies from multiple different countries over weeks, if not months. And in some cases, these sort of operations uh, are developing over years. Um, and, and so whilst, uh, as I said at the beginning, I'd certainly commend uh, all the men and women that took part in the operation yesterday, there's also a small army uh, of officers from various different countries, including in the producer and the transit countries in South America, that will have contributed, uh, likely to have contributed, uh, the intelligence that led to this interdiction. Um, MAOC, the Maritime Analysis and Operations Centre in Lisbon, which uh, Michael O'Sullivan, former uh, senior guard officer, headed uh, in, in previous years. He was speaking uh, on the programme last night. Yes, yeah. yeah. So uh, that played a, a very important role, and MAOC is absolutely crucial in coordinating, um, in particular, the gathering the intelligence. Uh, assessing which uh, naval and defence and police and customs assets are in place, uh, particularly in Europe, but also liaising with uh, sometimes with African uh, colleagues as well, uh, to put in place an operation to, to surveil and then, if possible, uh, to interdict that shipment. Um, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a lengthy process. Uh, it's very complex. It can be very dangerous, uh, in particular for, for those uh, men and women in the countries where, where the cocaine is produced and through which it transits to come here. As, as, uh, uh, as Assistant Commissioner Kelly said this morning, uh, these cartels uh, uh, have blood on their hands. There was another thing that was said at the press conference today, which I thought was very interesting, and they spoke about the fact that there must be corrupting of officials along that route for a quantity of this size to have come as far as it had. 
Tell me about that. Absolutely. And certainly uh, within my organisation, Transparency International, uh, the, the corruption element of transnational organised crime is something that, that we spend uh, quite a lot of time looking at. Corruption is one of the key enablers of any form of, of organised crime, when it's, particularly when it's crossing borders. Uh, so whether that's human trafficking, drug trafficking is the case that we're talking about this evening, weapons, uh, uh, fraud, and, and, and crucially the laundering of the proceeds uh, of these different forms of criminality. Uh, they all to varying degrees rely on some element of corruption. And when we talk about corruption, we typically think of the bribe to the, to the state official. That, that can be important, but it also involves professional enablers. So lawyers and accountants uh, who might be involved in creating front companies, uh, company service providers who are, who are setting up these, these front companies uh, and, and laundering uh, the proceeds uh, of, of these very substantial cocaine shipments. Gary, there has been a lot of praise heaped on those who were involved in this operation and you know, clearly some praise for the intelligence, as Alexander pointed there, behind this operation that got us to this point. And I think we'd be recognised as having pretty positive uh, intelligence infrastructure here. But the physical infrastructure has come in for some, I think, fairly fair criticism. Very fair criticisms. But also it captures the extent of the challenge that faces our naval and defence services. Like the Irish sea waters is eight times bigger than their landmass. We probably have one ship at sea at any one point, stays out for four weeks and comes back in and we get another ship out to sea. That's not sustainable. What we saw yesterday captured in full scale for everybody to see, there is international cartels who operate on a massive scale, who see through our waters as a transit hub and also as a drop-off point. In order to meet that challenge, we need to ensure that we have enough naval vessels. Most importantly, we actually have the vessels, we don't have the people to man them. So. Given the scale of the challenge, it's now the onus is on the state. It's the naval service themselves have been calling for it for a long time. Recruitment, retention of staff in particular has been an issue. But given this challenge, now there's an onus upon us to meet it. We've seen um, the job that was done yesterday, when they got the information, when they had to go out and intervene in this, um, with this cartel. But do we have enough for it to do tomorrow, next week, the week after? Because these cartels will not stop. Yeah, and that was one of the points that was being made today, Lisa Chambers. If you really want to change any sort of behaviour, if you want this act as a deterrent, mm -hmm. then one seizure once a year isn't going to do it. It's got to be sustained. And the truth of the matter is, even the tarnished, uh, Michael Martin said a few weeks ago that he was extremely concerned about the fact that we only have two operational naval ships. Yeah, we, we have more ships than that, but they're just not operational because we don't have the crew. And we've had... I've been talking about retention uh, issues in the defence forces for up on nearly 10 years now. So it's been it's been a problem that's developed over a long period. It's a difficult one to address quickly because the skills that we have within the defence forces, um, you can't really get them from the private sector. It's difficult to go and get those skills and bring them in. You have to train people up and grow those skills uh, internally in the organisation. So Perhaps you, you have to incentivise them better mm -hmm. too. Oh, well, we, need to keep, we need to hold the people that we have. We, we lost so many incredibly talented and skilled individuals from the defence forces across all ranks over the last number of years because of pain conditions issues. And did and the government take responsibility for that? I, well, I think multiple governments take responsibility for that, but there's an honest conversation that has to happen and it started. Um, last year, we had the publication of the, the report into the Defence Forces, which uh, the government committed to going to level level two in, in that, which is going to increase our defence spending from 1.1 billion to 1.5 billion. If we want to uh, better defend ourselves, our, our maritime territory is five times larger than our land territory. That's going to take 
money and it's going to take resources. So there has to be buy-in from all political parties and, and citizens that if we want to protect our, our maritime waters and have a properly functioning Navy service, we have to invest okay. in it. Does that level two um, agreement look at paying conditions? No, I don't think it looked at paying conditions in terms of future Defence Force Commission. Not to any real extent. It was down in Hall Boland. It didn't actually address the fact that a second star, a private second star in 410 euro at this minute and they're being trained up to a really serious level and they're competing with um, other um, maritime organisations in the private sector, they're being recruited into the cruise ship industry for example and we're not paying people enough to actually keep them in the job that we're training up to a very high level. Okay, okay, paying conditions is front and centre, we've mm-hmm. seen a 20% increase no. in Army Ranger Wing allowances, they participated in the, in the uh, in the seizure of this consignment and it was the first time actually the Army Ranger was deployed on Irish territory. So we've got fantastic people there and paying conditions is front and centre, but also Not infrastructure, investing, in, investing in our barracks. No. And actually, we're going to have to expand our naval service and that's going to cost us and we have to invest, but I think, I think the public want us to do that. Okay, do you agree that that's where the focus needs to be, expanding the physical infrastructure here or is it actually more about intelligence, Alexander? Well, I, I don't think you can pick uh, any one of them out. Uh, the intelligence piece, as we've discussed, is absolutely crucial. What happened yesterday is highly unlikely to have happened without that intelligence gathering. And to their credit, Angadi Shiakana over the last number of years, I think, have invested quite heavily in terms of expanding their international network and footprint and interagency liaison. The, the defence, and, the, and in particular the naval element, is really key as well. I guess I'd introduce another aspect here, which is the financial. Uh, these guys aren't doing it for fun, they're doing it for serious, serious profits. And the, f- the proceeds of uh, the shipment that was interdicted yesterday would have been laundered through various different mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And these aren't your, your local drug dealers who are laundering their funds through, through a used car dealership or a tanning salon. It's on a much greater scale. Mm-hmm. It's on a much greater scale and they will use professional money launderers. So these are guys who, who, uh, who sell their services to launder the funds of criminality and, and top-level corruption through complex financial vehicles. Now, Ireland, Dublin, is now a major global financial centre. And so I guess I wouldn't take anything away from the defence discussion, the naval discussion, and, and, and always encourage intelligence-led policing. But I'd also say that we really need to look at Ireland's ability to, uh, to identify seize and repatriate the proceeds of serious criminality and corruption. Okay. I just want to go back to uh, Mick O'Toole because I'm just hearing in my ear there, Mick, that there has been three further arrests this evening. What more can you tell us on that? Yeah, Gardaí have just issued a statement in the last 10 or 15 minutes, Kira. As you know, three people were arrested in the operation that saw the drugs seized. But at the press conference today, Assistant Commissioner Kelly said that there and there is still a criminal investigation into this and there may be more arrests. So he obviously knew what was going to happen. So three people, three men have been arrested in the in the south of the area of the country, Guardia are saying. Now they've been held under Section 50 of, of the Criminal Justice Act. It's very stringent anti-gangland act and they've been held in suspicion of being involved in organised crime. Obviously this is organised crime. They, they can be held for a week. But as I say, Mr Kelly did predict that there may be more arrests in this. We do know, for example, that um, someone bought the trawler that was allegedly used in this operation. So there is a separate investigation. And then there's the whole question of the captain wasn't on the ship when the Army Ranger Wing stormed it. So who was trying to evade Guardi? So there were 25 odd crew members there. They were detained, not arrested. But the investigation is ongoing. Commissioner Kelly did say there could be more arrests. Um, in terms of, I suppose, supply and demand 
here when you look at the scale of the drugs that were coming into Ireland. We have to reflect on the huge domestic demand for cocaine, don't we, Mick? Look, it's as you say, it's supply and demand. They're, the the cartels are selling sending drugs to Ireland and you know part of Western Europe because that's one of the main market and that's main market and that's where the money is. People, you know, I think there is a disconnect. People who do a few lines of coke on a Friday or a Saturday in a pub or whatever don't really realise the connection there is between these, as the commissioner says, murderous cartels who are holding states to hostage. They are narco-terrorists and they're, you know, very, very dangerous threats to democracy in those countries. But there is, I think sometimes people lose that connection, really. Um, just one final question to you, Mick. If this is what also we're catching, you have to ask what we are not stopping coming into this country. I mean, can it's we ever put a figure way. on that? Uh, look, I think the best guess, and I think Guardi and over the time I've been involved in this game, Guardi and Customs usually give a different figure, but you're talking probably between 10 and 40% of what comes in is caught. But okay. so I think it's clear most people would accept a majority of cocaine and drugs, other drugs, does get through the net. Okay, Alexander, when there's a massive seizure like this, I mean, as we said, these are global cartels who are worth billions of euro. Uh, the Kinnons, I think, was mentioned there um, uh, at one point. Do they change their modus operandi at all when they see a seizure like this? Absolutely. They'll be constantly monitoring uh, the, the number of seizures, the level of seizures, um, how it's done, and they'll adjust their, their tactics accordingly. There are only, though, a certain number of ways you can skin a cat in terms of moving that product across the ocean, whether it's by air or whether it's by sea. So, yes, they'll change, they'll adjust, they'll adjust their routes in particular, and they'll adjust their methodologies uh, in light of these sorts of, uh, of interdictions. All right, we're going to leave that there for now. I'm sure we'll come back to that story uh, tomorrow night. My thanks to Mick O'Toole and to Alexander Chance for joining me. Up next, could tax breaks on rental income keep more Irish landlords in the market? We debate. suggested that there's a budget proposal asking for a reduction in tax on rental income and has been put forward as a strategy to prevent Irish landlords from leaving the market. But how effective and fair would it actually be? Fianna Fáil's Lisa Chambers and the Social Democrats' Gary Gannon have stayed with me and they're joined by lecturer and author Rory Hearn, financial advisor and analyst Carl Dieter and CEO of the Institute of Professional Auctioneers and Valuers, Pat Devitt, and you're all very welcome to the programme. Lisa, I'm going to start with you. Is this something Fianna Foyle is in favour of? Is this something that you're in favour of? And should we see it in the next budget next month? Uh, yes, to all three questions. Um, we do need to see some sort of incentive for the smaller landlord. So last year, recall, we, we put in place the renters tax credit, which was to assist renters, and that will continue. And there will be a budget package for renters as well. But we know that small landlords, and this is not the big corporate landlords with lots and lots of properties, people that maybe have one or two properties, they are leaving the market. We know this, and it's a Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Problem, because we need them to stay in the market. Now, others will comment about landlords and they will say that word in, in have almost like in a disdainful way as if it's bad to be a landlord or you're a bad person for being a landlord. These are ordinary people. We need them in the market. They provide a valuable service to people in, in, that are looking for rental properties. And if we don't address the fact that they're exiting the market at the rate they are, we're going to have we're going to create more problems. Would so there be conditions at, attached? Well, that's what we're looking at, and that hasn't been ironed out yet. I think what I, I think what you're going to see, and this is just my own opinion on it, is that you will see a condition attached in terms of length of tenancy. So if you're going to get access to this tax uh, package for smaller landlords, these are people that are paying uh, income tax on their rental income, and they probably have a mortgage on the property. They're not making huge profits, uh, but if you are going to get this benefit, the idea I think is that you will have to commit to a longer term tenancy. That's a benefit to the tenant because you're getting more security and. A longer tenancy agreement um, and I, I do think it'll work and it's been called for for a number of years uh, I think we'll see movement in this budget on it the minister is committed to it Dara O'Brien and the minister of finance Michael, Michael McGrath as well I know that Rory will disagree with me on this I watched your video earlier uh, so Rory will disagree that those people that landlords are exiting the market but you did say that people are selling their properties so people selling their properties is landlords exiting the market and that is an issue um, and we may disagree ideologically on how to tackle this um, but this is one of many solutions to what we're trying to do in housing. Okay, in so one of many solutions to deal with the housing crisis. Certainly not the only one, but there will also be measures in this budget for renters. Why are you so fundamentally opposed to this, Rory, here? Yeah, I think it's fundamentally the, the wrong way to go. Firstly, that there's no actual evidence produced that introducing this tax break will keep landlords in the market. Um, so first of all, we're supposed to be making policy based on evidence. There is no evidence been produced that this will keep landlords in the market. Secondly, if the issue is, which we know it is, that landlords leaving means tenants being evicted, why does the government not reinstate the eviction ban or remove the ability of landlords to evict a tenant when they're selling the property. For which how is, long would you be proposing that? Would be well, I think the eviction ban should be brought in place for at least two to three years. Um, I've made that uh, proposal a number of times. And I think that, as I said, the ability of landlords to evict a tenant should be removed but they said because, on this, sale. Because, and because but this in could most, be introduced with conditions attached. But the point is that the landlord has to keep the property mm -hmm. for a certain period of time. But you don't need to give them a tax break to introduce tenant security. Tenant security should be brought in anyway. What renters need is actually reduced rents. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is buy the properties off landlords that are leaving. The problem is if you give a tax break for landlords, it incentivizes further uh, purchase of properties by landlords, which squeezes out first-time buyers 
We don't need more landlords. What we actually need is public housing, affordable housing and security for tenants. OK, I want to go to uh, Pat David. Where is the evidence, Pat, that this would stop the exodus from the market? Um, I don't think there is evidence at the moment and I wouldn't expect to see evidence until such time as it happens. Uh, and I think, uh, Rory, it's a red flag indeed, you know, something saying that there's no evidence. Where would you expect to find evidence because it hasn't happened before? Uh, I believe that it will be a good thing if it does happen in the marketplace, a break for those small landlords and it will be an equalisation of the tax with institutional investors and it will also be an, uh, an equalisation of the tax of 25% with corporation tax, which will be a big thing for landlords in many, many ways. Is. But where and is the evidence, alone... I suppose, Pat, that it's the tax, that it's the tax or rental income that is proving too onerous, that is leading to landlords leaving the market? Well, the evidence is on surveys that are done of landlords that are leaving the marketplace and why they're leaving. Like the two big reasons why they're leaving is A, because of the tax element and the way they've been treated, the tax treatment of landlords. And uh, B, is because they can't increase the rents at the moment. And this has been a case all of the time since the RPZs were introduced. And we're still in the same scenario that landlords can only increase the rent at the moment in RPZs by 2% when in actual fact interest rates are at 6 and 7%. So like, you know, they, they, if, if we're looking for antidotal evidence as opposed to uh, actual real evidence. The antidotal evidence is there in surveys done. Many, many surveys have done. We've done them of our members. IPOA have done them of their members. And the antidotal evidence is there. Let me just put the, sorry, okay. uh, to cut across you there, Pat, I just want to put that back to uh, my panel. Uh, he mentioned surveys there and there was actually a survey out this afternoon from the Irish Property Owners Association, Carl, and they said that their survey showed that 78% of their members who are considering leaving said they would reconsider if there was a tax break, if they were paying, for example, the lower rate of yeah. tax. So there, there is actually some evidence there. Well, that doesn't really mean anything. Saying you'd reconsider something doesn't mean you'll actually do it. You're saying, yeah, I'll, I'll consider it. So, like, look at it. Rents have never been higher. Prices have never been higher. Like, it's probably the best time in the history of the state in a, in, from a statistical point of view to be a landlord, and yet they still want out. So you've got to ask yourself, what are the motivations there? Is it the unfair tax system, which they've shouldered for the last 15 years? Is it the fact that we have double taxation? For instance, you can't offset the cost of property tax against your income tax. Is it the fact that for a while you couldn't even offset your mortgage interest, which is completely unique to Ireland in terms of bad tax policy? Which has changed now. It, well, it, it has, but you know, usual day late dollar short Irish solution, you know, come up with the great answer after the horse had bolted. So I think that what's happening is, is, is a few things. People get fed up to a point where it's like, you know what, I'm not going to keep on trying. That's one thing. You've also got rising interest rates. You've got a situation where the rent controls never gave people the capacity to write price their property if they had been good to tenants. That was such a huge policy error. That goes back to Simon Coveney. Massive policy error, very destructive. The last one is, though, as well, it's 2023. A lot of these properties were bought 20 years ago. Property tends to have a 20-year horizon as an investment. And these are investors, landlords, that's what they do it for. They're not out there for altruism. So they're coming to the natural end of when they would be doing this. They might be, you know, hitting their 60s. They might need the money for their children or for health or to do something else or pay off their own debt. So... But we're we, talking about creating an incentive to keep those people in the market for a yeah, little you know, bit you know it's a great longer incentive. until supply comes on stream, which is obviously the build, idea. Build enough houses and make the rules and the functioning of the market easy enough that regular people can understand what they're doing and get back in. Like, why is it that 20 years ago, everyone was buying property and now no one wants to touch it with a barge pole? Like, we don't have young people saying, yeah, I aspire to be a landlord anymore. 
It just doesn't happen. It's not part of, that part of our national psyche is gone because we've beaten it out by downgrading the view of landlords, you know, having very uh, negative ways of dealing with it, having a, a whole so lot of systems. So we've demonized them, that, you feel. So well, why not then give them a break here? If they can't adjust their rents, for example, for as you say, then let them take more of their rent home. Break for what, though? There's no evidence that anyone in the market today needs that break. You could be giving a break to someone who's making hundreds of thousands already. I mean, so if you're you still in it today... Do you want to keep them in the market or not, Carl? Well, no, but what I'm trying to say is this. We've done enough to push landlords out of the market that if you're still there today, you're probably in it for the, for the you know, you're in it to win it. You're staying anyway. Why would you turn around and say, here's some free money? What you've got to do with any kind of tax expenditure is say, how can we do this in a way that brings people in? You could reintroduce Section 23 property. You could change the laws around VAT. There's a load of things you could do without saying that the existing people in the market suddenly get this manna from heaven, fiscal, you know, cash dropping on them without any way of deciding, do they actually need it? Okay, Gary Gannon, yeah. do the SOC Thames believe that we do need to have a rental market? Do you think landlords are important to the rental markets? Yeah. And do you accept the premise that they're leaving? Yeah, we believe we should have a rental market with secure rental tenancies above all else. But I do want to go back to Pat's point in relation to the evidence, because if you look at the evidence from the census that we got this year, it kind of gives a light to this thing that the whole landlords are fleeing the market. We have 7% more landlords, as people living in private rental accommodation from landlords, than we did in 2016. We have 54,000 more people in, in census data living in rented accommodation that is captured in those PRT figures. I mean, that's the evidence that we've got this year. We've also so, had 500,000 <laughs> increase in our population in that time and an increase in the supply in that time. But, but we're also... not a one-to-one -one thing No, either, I don't right? think so. No, I don't. But we have 7% more people living in private rented accommodation from a landlord than we did in 2016. That's the facts that was captured in the census data that was released this year. But in terms of where the Social Democrats do believe, we believe that if this, this shouldn't be the priority. We have the highest level of homelessness. We have the lowest level of home ownership at the minute. We have 423 affordable housing units. So would you do anything as a SOC Dem, if you got into government, to keep the current landlords in the market, despite yeah. what Carl's saying, there's no more evidence that they're leaving? Many would dispute that. If I'm going to focus on taxation within the rental market of in government, I'm going to be focusing on the REITs who are paying a very kind of small level of taxation equivalent to what lo local landlords are paying. And they're the people who are in the cities who are buying up properties that are making constituencies like mine untenable for people okay, who go so there to live Okay, so the would do nothing for the no, small private landlords. No, that's, I don't think that's true. We'll do it in terms of going after the REITs who aren't paying the vulture funds, who aren't paying equivalent level of taxation to the private landlords. I mean, that makes a difference. Okay, Lisa? Yeah, well, we seem to be having a debate whether there's landlords leaving or not. I, in my view, was that that's accepted fact that we, we know that the landlords are leaving and they're selling their properties. There's a good price to be got for selling a property. So that mixed with not getting enough return on your rental income where you're paying income tax is a disincentive to hold on to a rental property. So giving that little break to small landlords, not the big institutional hey, investors, not the big landlords, the small guy with maybe one property could be something they inherited or could be something they bought for their son or daughter to go to college. That's who we're focusing on. It is not the only measure. It is one of a multitude of measures. Lisa, there will be Lisa. a package for renters. The housing budget will is is astronomical, and it's going to be increased. We're, we're already so it's spending just one of many many measures. So many billions making. on housing. We're we're blasting money on housing like you know a drunken sailor. And is this the best use of the money? Let's just let's just look at it. A lot of the landlords out there, in particular the ones who would have bought during the boom, they went through years of negative equity. They went through years of you know rents falling off a cliff, and then having to support that. They went through years of, 
of brutal taxation. And now rates are rising and prices are good. That is... Like, like that's a but natural time to leave. Can I put it to you? If it has the impact of keeping landlords in the market that might otherwise have left, because we think that's what's happening, and that's the reason behind this, this proposal, and if we can get more secure tenancies and longer tenancies, isn't it a good thing if we can achieve those two things? But, but, but why don't you just let Rory back in there? Sorry, Carl, let Rory back in there. think that will happen. There's a number of things here. First of all, it is indicative of government policy, that it is prioritising this in this budget, tax breaks for landlords, rather than looking at part of the problem. And we say, you know, oh, there's no issue with landlords. There actually is an issue with landlords. If you have some people buying multiple properties, someone has to rent them and someone else is squeezed out from being able to buy them. Part of the problem of why we're in this housing crisis is because for 20 years, and it's only been in the last 20 years, through the Celtic Tiger, people were incentivized to buy multiple properties. That squeezed out a generation. Doesn't the IPOA say that 70% of small private landlords have one property? They yeah, don't have multiple so properties. So let them sell it. Sell it to the government. Sell it to a first-time buyer. But the government should introduce tenancy security so someone can't be evicted when the property is being sold. The issue isn't there then. The key thing, and this is where I would agree with Carl, the key thing is giving uh, increasing supply. And when um, Lisa says there's loads of money going into housing, Carl says it too, a billion of our four billion housing budget is going to landlords through private rental subsidies. What we actually need is a significant increase in billions going into building public housing, like to a public construction company that I've said, rather than being reliant on private landlords. OK, I just want to go to Pat Devitt there because one of the, I suppose, points that has been made by, I think, actually, Minister Dara O'Brien made it last year, the Labour Party are making it this year, saying, look, this is a tax break for wealthy people. There's an unfairness here that the people paying the rent would be paying a higher rate of tax on their income than the people receiving the rent. Well, Kira, just to go back to a few points of what 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 uh, Carol was saying there and what Rory are saying there. First of all, and what Carol was saying about uh, the landlords and the rent that they're getting, and that they have indeed, and this is this is this is actually a big big fact. They've supported these properties through thick and thin over the past number of years, and now when there's an opportunity for the government to do something to help them, of course, it's not the right thing to do either. And the figures that Rory is talking about, the uh, census for 2016 said there was 320,000 odd landlords in the market. Marketplace. And in 2021, said that there was 276,000 landlords in the marketplace. Of course, one of the problems here is, and I'm not sure whether Rory is aware of this or not, is many landlords leave the market and they don't actually deregister from the PRTB. And indeed, uh, in that situation, uh, many of these people who are actually think they're renting properties, like licensees aren't renting properties at all. A licensee is uh, in a private house living with the owner is treated as a private guest in that property. They may think themselves because they're paying rent that they're actually renters and they may well if it put that on the census form. So like to quote the census form is fine once we know that the information on it is correct, which I well believe is not correct. And landlords, my, my agents are telling me and my members are telling me every day of the week that most of the properties that they're selling at the moment is landlords leaving the market. I don't think there's any dispute about that. So okay. whether landlords are in the marketplace and rent the property or whether first-time buyers buy the property, of course, if we have the eviction ban that Rory is speaking about, uh, first-time buyers can't buy those properties because people have to evict the tenant 
market to make sure that they get market value for that property when they sell it. So like you can't be saying that uh, it's great for first time buyers to buy the property and then talking about an eviction ban in the same mouthful. It's not possible to do. You have to understand the marketplace and what's happening in it to know that that isn't a possibility. So that really the help that the landlords are going to get, if they are going to get it, we were hoping last year the same thing was going to happen and it didn't happen. So hopefully this year Lisa's right and it will happen and landlords will get a bit of a break. I just want to go back to Lisa because it was Minister Dara O'Brien who said last year when this was mooted that you need to take really seriously the idea that we should treat the taxation of working people differently to the income that people generate from rental income. People that I think most would agree are probably in a more privileged position than those who are renting in the first place. Probably some of them, yes. Um, but I've, I've met lots of people that are renting a property where they inherited from a parent they, or they're in negative equity still. So it's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach on this. And we are, I suppose, responding to what we see as a challenge for smaller landlords that tell us they're leaving because this is an issue. And Would what we want to do... Though that- a lot of those landlords who aren't, who have no intention of leaving, as Carl um, pointed out there, that they will benefit from this too. But it is also worth pointing out that where you have large corporate landlords that have multiple properties, they pay less tax because they pay corporate tax. So there is a differentiation well, there. Tax they don't pay corporate and tax. Can I also make the point as well about, Rory raised about the, the state purchasing house, houses. We do have the tenants in situ scheme, mm-hmm. as you'll be aware. And how many if units it, if, of that will if, be purchased but it, this year? But it is, it, but it is being How many, how many being will used. be purchased? It is being used. And it's do you know how many will be purchased? I don't have exact figures at of today, but and, I know. And you should, but, it's, it's, but it is worth pointing out. There's a few thousand in but, comparison to what's actually but needed. You said if for it the state, per, there, but there is a scheme in place for the for the local authority to actually purchase homes where a tenant. But there are also we know huge contacts by people all the time who say the local authority is not buying my property. They're saying it's not up to standard, or I don't meet the income target exactly. And these people are being evicted. And I can the tenant in situ scheme is not. I can give you stories of success evicted. as well. It's okay. not all bad out there. Is there any just? justifiable reason for small landlords, Rory, to be treated so differently to corporate landlords? Well, I I think the fundamental point is that this is, as you've said, this will be helping. A tax break for landlords is essentially giving public money because we're reducing the tax they have to pay. It's giving public money to people who are privileged in that they have more than one property. We have an entire generation who don't have a home of their own. If we have any money, we should be spending it on building affordable homes even if for it was, that generation. Even if it was time limited for a short period of time until that's No, I, I don't think, because the, the evidence is not there that this will keep landlords in the market. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that discussion there for now. My thanks to Lisa, Gary, to Rory, to Carl and to Pat for joining me. It's certainly a subject we will return to on the programme after this. We're going to take a look back at any of the damage that might have been caused by Storm Agnes and look ahead to storm season. Welcome back. Welcome power outages to fallen trees. Alan O'Reilly from Carlo Weather is here to break down the impact of Storm Agnes. You're very welcome to the programme, Alan. Thank you for joining us. The south and the southeast, it appears, were worst affected. Um, tell us what happened. 
Yes, indeed, Kira. Actually, I think the power check map is a good indication of where it was impacted. If you draw a line from Dublin to Limerick, everything to the south of that, really. Star Magnus moved into the southwest um, early this morning. Top gust was at Shirkin Island, 117 kilometres an hour. There was actually gusts of over 90 kilometres an hour for 10 hours at Shirkin Island, showing the long duration of Star Magnus. Very strong winds for a prolonged period of time, and they moved further inland and further across the country impacting many more counties in the south, the southeast and the east through the afternoon and into the evening and still quite breezy but they have started to drop back now after impacting many parts including Dublin Airport which saw some uh, issues with diversions and delays. Yeah, I think Dublin Airport said 31 flights had been cancelled and there was also delays or cancellations out of uh, Cork and Kerry uh, Airport today. Um, you see some of the scenes there of fallen trees. I saw footage earlier of high winds, um, storms, a lot of rain. How dangerous are those conditions? Yeah, it was quite tricky conditions. The leaves been in full, or the trees been in full leaf at this time of the year. It was one of the biggest issues that I had been warned about, and that did turn out to be a big issue. So a lot of the power outages were caused by trees coming down, but very heavy rain as well. Some localised flooding, over 40 millimetres of rain fell from midnight up until midday. So unfortunately, some areas were flooded. So bad combination of things. There was local kind of different, you know, there was a, a truck, high-sided truck over, blown over uh, in Wexford as well. Thankfully, the driver was okay. But there was some local impacts as well where you had some very sudden strong gusts. But thankfully, not too much coastal flooding. It was high, but we didn't have the really high tides. So we were lucky that this storm didn't coincide with the very high tides. But still, some overtopping. I shared some photos from the beach in Tremor. Um, it looked like snow on the beach, but actually it was foam that was blown in. So it was pretty rough all along the coast, but even inland. And the trees really were the biggest issue. Um, are there any warnings still in place, Alan? So the, the warnings are, are mainly expiring now. The orange warning was extended up to 7pm. Um, that has obviously passed. The yellow warnings are expiring. There is still some strong winds gusting still to 80 kilometres an hour at Mace Head in the last hour and still gusting to 70 kilometres an hour in Dublin. Um, but the rain has largely moved on now as the storm has deepened, or sorry, has filled and has moved out of Irish waters and towards Scotland. But still quite breezy out there, so still another couple of hours really before the winds start to ease overnight. So what is the outlook then at this point, Alan, for the next few days? Yeah, so we have another band of rain moving in from the west tomorrow through the afternoon. Quite narrow band. We're crossing the country, bringing some more rain. Quite breezy, nothing like today's winds, but still quite a breezy day. The good news is, is Friday's looking a pretty good day. Lighter winds, good sunny spells, and only a very odd shower. But we have more rain and more breezy conditions moving in for Saturday. So uh, maybe make the most of Friday if you need to go outside, maybe, and re repair some of the damage that Agnes has done. Okay, is this the beginning of storm season? Is that what we should expect? Well, look, it's very early in the season to get a storm. We had to wait very late in the last season until August to get a first name storm. There is no signs of anything major in the Atlantic for the next seven to ten days, but, you know, it's very hard to know beyond that. So hopefully not. Um, we did miss Storm Nigel or Hurricane Nigel that went up towards Iceland. So hopefully maybe if the Atlantic does create a few more, they'll head maybe to the other side of us.
All right, Alan O'Reilly from Carlo Weather. Thank you as always for bringing us that information. Well, that's it from us here on the Tonight Show. My thanks to Alan and to all of my guests for joining me. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms, and you can also find us on Instagram and on TikTok tonight, VMTV. But from all of the late team here, good night and do take that.